0: The preaching of the gospel truth is divisive. It's unifying in those who love the truth, but it divides humanity. I think perhaps the Apostle Paul was amongst the clearest in this understanding. As he reflects upon his own ministry, he describes himself and his companions as those who were the saviour of death unto death for some. And yet the other, the saviour of life, unto life but we knew the obligation there he says after that who is sufficient for these things the challenge of gospel ministry is that it indeed does pronounce death upon those who reject the truth that should not be seen as something of unimportance to preach the word of God to share the word of God in your family or in your neighborhood you are sharing a message that divides Belief means life, rejection is unto death. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Those who believe the cross to be folly and the message of redemption to be folly, they are those who will perish. Again, so often we look upon that verse and we think about the foolishness. But they are are those who are perishing. We preach Christ crucified, Unto Jews a stumbling block, and the Greeks foolishness, But unto them which are called, Both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, And the wisdom of God. You get the sense, I trust by now, That the gospel is divisive. On the cross, One believed, And went to paradise with the Lord, The other rejected, And even now, Is suffering in eternal torments. Divisive. So it was on Mount Carmel. There's division here. Again, there are those and they have confessed that Jehovah is God. They've been confronted, I believe, with a fresh revelation of the mercy and justice of God. Again, please note verse number 36. "It came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice." Verse 38, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice. The wrath of God is poured out upon the sacrifice and not upon the people. And the response of the people is to acknowledge the Lord, he is the God, the Lord, he is the God. Now we delight, at least I trust you do, you delight in the account of Mount Carmel we love to tell our children the story. It's such a a vivid narrative. What a scene it must have been. And perhaps you're even open to tell your unsaved neighbors the story. The justice of God as the fire falls upon the sacrifice and spares the people. We could share that in the gospel, couldn't we? You could take your people in their mind's eye and say, Come with me, let's let's walk together to Carmel. Let's see Elijah there and let's see what God does upon that mount. But I wonder, will we stop at verse number 39? Thus far and no further. Perhaps with children, perhaps with unsaved neighbours. We don't particularly want to deal with the fact. That each and every proverbial is put to death at the brook Kishon. The brook Cherith brought sustenance. The brook Kishon brings down judgment. The gospel is divisive. We might skip quickly over verse 40 and run ahead to the coming rain. We, We like, you know, we like the thought of God's blessing. We'll see that. But even before we get to the rain, we've got to acknowledge that Elijah here is performing the work of a prophet of God. Note the verses, verse number 40, Elijah said unto them. Verse 41, Elijah said unto Ahab. Verse 43, Elijah said to his servant. You have these three situations where Elijah brings a word to particular people at a particular context. For a definite purpose, He is the prophet of God speaking for God as God's instrument upon Mount Carmel on this day. Again, I'm always cautious about unduly spiritualizing situations like this, but I do think we can see, typologically here, things that are true and typical of the ministry of the church. At least in in picture form. Elijah as God's prophet, the church as God's prophet today in this world, there are things that are similar and things that overlap clearly. So I'll seek to tread carefully, but I trust that by the end of the day you see the obvious parallels. You see, the first thing Elijah does here is he engages in the condemnation of false teaching. There's the condemnation of false teaching. Now, before I get to verse number 40, I want to go back a little bit and think about the mockery of Elijah earlier on in the chapter. Again, we, we looked at it, we thought about it briefly for a season that Elijah engaged in mockery. In verse number 27, it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them. And I asked the question last time, well, was that a right action? I answered it strongly in the affirmative. You see, these prophets... They they were not simple innocents in a dark time. They were willfully deceiving people and taking people away from the one true and living God. They ought to have known better. And in a Christ-like fashion, Elijah exposed the fall after a false religion. The prophets are false and are leading others astray, and God has special words of condemnation to those who do so. I think it's worth just making a comment of application. When I say it may be appropriate to mock false teaching, I would urge you to be careful regarding those who sit under false teaching. It is easy for us in a self-righteous fashion to begin to mock and condemn those who have been duped and deceived under false teaching. And so just be careful and gentle. We see it in the Lord's ministry, and we see it here in Elijah. How he treats the people is different to how he treats the prophets. There is a place to mock the deceiver, but I believe Christ-like attitude is to be gentle towards those who are deceived. Above all, Whether it be the false prophet or whether it be those deceived, we must be those who highlight the deception. This is true, and this is false. You can't have two truths that oppose each other. And so as Elijah continues, he clearly has no time for falsehoods. He is a Luther-like figure, if you like, in the Old Testament story, as those who does not suffer full gladly. But we should not see Elijah here as simply a hot-tempered prophet of God who wears strange clothes. And sometimes we convey him in that regard. We look at him as well, that's just Elijah. And so we, we almost read verse number 40 and say, well, what do you expect? That's Elijah. That's what Elijah's do. Thomas, he wouldn't do that. James and John, they would do that, but... Elijah just do this sort of thing. Please do not be so easily deceived. Elijah here is acting not in a vengeful, bad-tempered spirit. He's acting as a judge under God's law. You see, please turn back to Deuteronomy chapter thirteen. Elijah is not here acting out of his own volition. He understands the word of God, and he is one who is now performing what God expects in his word. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse, really the entire chapter, we're going to highlight uh, certain parts. So we look at verse number one. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and give thee sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder come to pass, for he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. That word of service is to worship them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet. The Lord is testing you. So these are prophets who have been allowed by God to do certain signs and wonders. Deceptive signs and wonders. And yet the people of God are being tested and they're being told not to follow after them. Verse 4: Ye shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And ye shall serve him and cleave unto him. This sense of intense loyalty to the Lord and not being deceived. But what happens? The prophet, verse number 5. And that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken to turn you away from the Lord your God. He is to put to death. Verse 6, what if this prophet is a brother, a son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is of thine own soul? What if they entice thee secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which they hast not known, thou nor thy fathers? What if the receiver is not so much a prophet as a person who's a near friend or a member of your family? Well, verse 8, thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him. Verse 9, but thou shalt surely kill him. Thine hand shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. And thou shalt stone him with stones that he died, because he hath sought to thrust thee away from the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You see, you get the scene now. Elijah here is acting as the prophet of God, the servant of God, And he's bringing about the judgment of God for those who have deceived the people. And please note the words carefully. He says, verse 40, Elijah said unto them, who? The people. You say Jehovah is God? Now back up what you say. And how are you going to prove that? You're going to take the prophets. And yet, because Elijah is the prophet, it says in verse 40, they took them. And Elijah brought them and slew them there. The people and Elijah are coming as one man upon all the falsehood. And they're destroying each of the prophets. Now, the application here requires tremendous care. This, again, is a situation we find ourselves, Israel, as what we call a theocracy. A nation under God. And we do not find in the writings of the apostles any requirement for capital punishment upon false prophets. That's not the language of the New Testament. You see, if you want to know what we are to do, well, surely the desire of Elijah was to cast down imaginations and to cast down every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. That's realism, isn't it? Casting down imaginations, casting down everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Well, what does Paul say how we do that? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So we're going to cast down these imaginations and we're going to oppose these things, but not in this fashion. We're going to do it through the preaching of truth and through the proper exercise of church discipline. We should also be careful as to how we include and who we include in the promise of Beal. You know, we are reformed Christians. We certainly have come from a fundamentalist tradition. And the tendency sometimes has been to point the finger and say to everybody else, you're following Beal. And we treat some within the wider church as if they were guilty of Bealism. The Lord says, he that is not against us is on our part, Mark chapter 9. And The Lord says in Luke chapter 9, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. There is a need for care and discernment here. that We don't accuse true believers as being guilty of bialism when we may differ over, with them over something of a more secondary nature. Just be careful. You see, turn across to Luke chapter 9, please. Just example this this, Luke chapter 9. It's, it's fascinating that in Luke chapter 9 we see Elijah actually referred to here. We, we came across this in our studies in Luke's gospel, of course. It's a time when the Lord has turned his face to go to Jerusalem. He's on his last journey there uh, to suffer and to die for our sins. Messengers go before his face. Verse 52, they enter a village of the Samaritans, they make ready for him. But that village, verse 53, but they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? Now the fire mentioned here is not the fire of Mount Carmel. It's the fire of Second Kings chapter 1 regarding the groups of the 50s, the captains of the 50s. But the same sense is here. Surely it's about right that we were like Elijah. And the Lord says to them, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now, all I'm saying from this is that do not take the events of Mount Carmel and the destruction of these prophets and therefore use that as a reason. To name and shame everybody else who doesn't agree with you. And to agree with them all in the same sense, they're all guilty of Baalism. Just be careful. Be discerning. But what we do learn from this situation, we learn a couple of things. We certainly learn the character of God. A God who is jealous for truth and jealous for the honor of his name. And a God who is jealous for the heart of his people. I was just thinking this over again this morning just in sort of final preparation for the message today. I'm really humbled again by the fact that God takes false teaching so seriously because he cares for the hearts and the minds of his people. That's a glorious truth. False teaching matters because false teaching is harmful. I think of Again, what we saw this morning, we saw sheep going astray. And over in Jeremiah 50, there's a verse, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. There's this accountability of those who are false teachers, and they they cause the people to go away. But God, He cares for His name, and He cares for His people. He's also a God who understands the danger of error. You see, we have to consider the New Testament's teaching regarding false teachers. What does the New Testament teach us regarding false prophets? Two things. It's really very simple. Keep them out, first thing. Keep them out, and if they get in, put them out. It's not more complicated than that. Keep false teaching out, and if false teaching creeps in privily, Get it out. You see, please turn across to 2 John and the verse number 7. 2 John verse 7. This is the first of these things. So what are we going to do? We're going to consider, you're going to think of verses like Timothy and Jude and 2 John and Third John. All these, all these various places where false teaching is referred to. Well, 2 John and the verse number 7. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a receiver and an antichrist. Again, there were those who were denying the true humanity of the Lord Jesus. And we'll see more of that uh, tonight. He says this, Look to yourselves, that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whoso transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God, he that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Here's the key. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Now the reference to the house there may well be a reference to house churches. And so the idea is, if some false teacher comes along, and they're not holding to the orthodox truth regarding Christ, his person, his work, don't let them in. Keep them outside the door. Don't give them an ear or an opportunity to give them the ear of the people of God. You've got to guard the people's hearts. Now, I read this verse today, and I must confess, this verse is such a responsibility. Because you know today, you have millions and millions of opportunities to hear false teaching and to bring it into your home. Or in the day, if all manner of social media devices used to be, perhaps you had a radio, and you may have somebody in the radio teaching falsehood, so you turn the radio off. And then, of course, it goes on towards the television. Those who can afford a television ministry are, generally speaking, not teaching truth. It's not, universe, please, please, I'm not going to lump everything with Bialism. I'm trying not to do that. But in general terms, there's an awful lot of false teaching on the television screen even today. But then you go from that. Anybody can make a podcast. It's not difficult. Anybody can record themselves on their phone and share a TikTok or a YouTube or whatever else they do. You can, you can do all of that so very, very easily. And, you know, if you show an interest to religious things on your social media, well, they will give you more religious things. But the algorithms of Facebook and YouTube are not the study of truth. And so a label of Christian will be enough to allow you to hear that particular thing. And you may listen to it. And you may listen to someone and you agree with them politically. But they deny Christ. And to deny the gospel. We live in a generation that Second John verse 10 has an obligation that is so challenging. So all I can do is seek to preach truth and encourage you, if something doesn't smell right, ask somebody who may know. Be discerning. be careful. Be aware of those people your children are listening to and embracing. Be aware of the danger of error. If false teaching comes to the door, what are you going to do? You're going to keep it out. You're going to keep it out. Well, what happens if it gets in? Well, turn back to Titus chapter 1. Again, we have very, very clear instruction here. As Elijah had clear instruction in his day, we also have very, very clear instruction. Titus chapter 1 Titus chapter 1, the verse number 9. As Titus refers to the elders of the church, they are those who are to hold fast the faithful word as he's been taught, that he may be able to, sorry he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers, for there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lookers' sake. There is nothing new under the sun, but it is the duty and the responsibility of the elders of the church to teach the sound doctrine in such a way they can exhort and convince those who are deceiving. Now, please note, this is not minor doctrinal error. They are described as vain talkers and deceivers. They are those of the circumcision akin to Galatians chapter 1 who teach another gospel and who must be anathema. This is not the situation where you have minor level disagreement on some matter of theology. These are things regarding the soul. And yet, the teaching is not to put them to death, but to teach sound doctrine, to expose them and to deal with them so that their mouths are stopped. You go across to Second Timothy chapter 2, back a couple of pages. We saw this in our stories in Second Timothy. Where Paul tells Timothy, Shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And their word will eat of the hanker, as a canker sorry, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred. What do you do? You're to shun that. You're to avoid it. You're to keep it out of the church. You're to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. And then one last reference 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It was possible to teach about the second coming in a way that deceived. Again, a complex series of doctrines, yes. But Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which you received us. Now, here, please, this is a different level. There are those who are heretical, they are teaching things which deny the truth and will damn the soul. But here we've got people who are known as brothers, but they're in the church and they're not walking after apostolic doctrine. You're not to say, well, we're all Christians. Let friends be friends. No, if they're teaching things which are deceiving and endangering the souls of God's people, then the church's responsibility is to tell the entire church, mark that man and avoid that man, even though he professes be your brother, his teaching is not safe and sound and you should avoid it. You've got on down in verse number 14. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Now, here's a situation where the false teacher has got into the ear of somebody in the pew and the person in the pew has come to believe that and will not repent of their false belief. Not only Do you withdraw yourself from the false teacher? You must withdraw yourself from those who believe that false teaching and will not repent of it. It says here, count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. But false teaching is so dangerous that a believer can be deceived. And when they're deceived, that deception is in the church. And when it's in the church, it can infect others. And so some of those painful times in church life is when false teachers got in and it's spreading like, like, a, like an infection around the church. And the need is to put it out. These are not easy things to do. But we must beware evangelical softness. I think it was Dr. Paisley who was talking about being like an evangelical belly. Soft, Wobbly. No convictions and no truth. But I want to be likable. I don't want to deal with the hard things in the church when there's false teaching crept in. I don't want to do all of that. Folks, I I hate conflict. My personality, I, I hate being involved in conflict. But truth matters. And the absence of truth is so dangerous. And the Provs of Baal make that point for us. And so I encourage you if there are people in your life and they are taking you away from the Lord, don't let them escape. Isn't that what it says? Let not one of them escape. If there's teaching in your life or people in your life and they're pulling you away from the Lord, zero tolerance. The Lord must be first. So you have this issue of the condemnation of false teaching. Secondly, you have the separation from unbelief. Again, please, I'm going to move more quickly in these last couple of points, and certainly point three, we'll come back to uh, next Lord's day in more detail. But we know the story well here, and I I want to try to take you back as if you were a child reading this story for the first time. And you, you don't know what's coming next. I wonder if you were a good reader of the story, you would uh, perhaps have have intensified the pitch of your voice and and got somewhat quicker when you come to the fire. And the fire fell, and you you get the idea. And the the child is riveted at the idea of what God is doing. And, And then I wonder, would the reader pause? Verse 41. You get to verse 40, he slew them there. Pause. And Elijah said unto Ahab, oh, I forgot about Ahab. Was he there all this time? Is it because we we know he's there. We we know the story so well, but we haven't heard tell of him from verse number 20. Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together. He's been a, a very distant figure. He's been in the periphery. You know what? He has so little power, he cannot stop the people killing all the prophets. How's Jezebel going to think of that when he goes home? You get the scene here? Oh, and Ahab. Oh, what about Ahab? Well, Elijah brings judgment upon Ahab. He says to Ahab, Go and eat. I'm going to pray. Now, there are all sorts of theories as to what happens and the reason whereby Elijah said to Ahab to go up and eat and drink. Different ideas. There are some suggest that Elijah's challenging Ahab as a test. Is he still carnal? Is he still in the flesh? Is he more concerned with food and drink than the true God? Is that, is that the idea here? Well, perhaps, but again, it's difficult to charge Elijah's commanding Ahab to sin. I think it's not probably a good situation. It may be the case that Elijah is certain that rain is coming. And you see in the verse, Get thee up, but eat and drink, for there is a sound abundance of rain. It may be the case that he's saying to Ahab, You better eat quickly because you've got to go to Jezreel because the rain's coming. Or it may even be the sense that he should eat and drink in celebration of God's returning blessing. All of these are various theories. Hard to be certain. One thing is certain. Ahab was not spiritually fit to join Elijah in the prayer time about to commence. Elijah and Ahab had no time to pray together. Hence, I've titled this point, There's a Need to Separate from Unbelief in the Church of Christ. Prayer itself, of course, private prayer, is an act of separation. The Lord says that when thou prayest, Matthew 6 Enter into thy closet, and when thou shut thy door, pray to thy Father, which is in secret. You see, prayer in secret is where much work is done for the Lord. It's not for show, no one to impress, no fear of being misunderstood, just open before the Lord. You see, we're we're carnal, and we'll often pray publicly to be seen and heard, We're like the Pharisees in that regard that we're happy to pray in public. And I go, what a good prayer that was. But when it comes to the closet, we're slow to shut the door. There's a need to separate in private prayer, to keep the world out and get before God. That need for separation in prayer. I don't know about you, but I've been convinced in more recent weeks. Just in recent weeks, I confess this. That having my cell phone near me when I pray is a complete disaster. It is such a temptation. A red dot appears. It pings. Suddenly happens. And suddenly the world is back into the prayer closet. Folks, we need separation from unbelief in the place of prayer. This world is no friend to prayer. And the devil delights to distract you in the place of prayer. Shut yourselves in in prayer. But even beyond that, this separation is not only private. It is principled. Look what it says, verse 42. So Ahab went up, and Elijah went up. Again, the the, the verbs are used here in a way that we see the stark contrast. Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. The gospel is divisive. It divides the true from the false, the dark from the light. It divides the Elijah from the Ahab and there cannot be any fellowship between light and darkness. Prayer must be a unity in truth, not only in name or even in objective. Sometimes we permit unity in prayer because we have the same burden. Or because the other party professed to know the Lord. Prayers for God's blessing must be prayers in true unity. That's true on the local church level, but it's true in other levels as well. I'm just simply saying, please be careful. We live in a day when we share common convictions with Roman Catholics, and with some conservative Jews, and others. And there's an increasing tendency in public gatherings on these issues to have seasons of public prayer. There is no fellowship between light and darkness. You cannot pray with a Roman Catholic about abortion. You're not praying on the same foundation. You've got to be careful about prayers at national political rallies. Fellowship between light and darkness. You've got to be careful even a local level, you may get involved in prayer fellowships at a local church. And that church does not preach the gospel. There's different, stratas, different levels here. But be careful. There's a need for separation from unbelief in the church of Christ. Not being uncharitable. Not being unkind. But truth matters. Thirdly, there is the expectation of God's blessing. He said to his servant, verse 43... Go up now, look toward the sea. Again, this has been a pretty negative sermon. I hope positive in the negativity, but false teaching and unbelief. And so I want to end by, if you like, wetting your appetite for next Lord's Day to think about the blessing of God. Because Elijah is certain that God is going to bless now. And he says to the servant, Go up now and look toward the sea. And again, I think as an evangelical pulpit, it is a responsibility to tell the people of God, look for God's blessings. Be on the watch for God coming in blessing. You see, rain, the rain that's going to come, is itself seen as a blessing. It's a blessing in God's common grace. God sends the rain upon the just and the unjust. God leaves himself with a witness in that he gives rain from heaven, Acts chapter 14. Rain itself is a a blessing of God's. It's seen as a covenantal blessing, the physical rain, the actual wet stuff. Seen as a blessing from God. Deuteronomy chapter 11 is key in this passage. It says there in the verse number 14, I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain that you may gather in thy corn and thy wine, and thine oil. When? When you diligently hearken unto his commandments, and you love the Lord your God, and you serve him with all your heart and all your soul. Physical rain was seen as a blessing. But spiritual blessings in the word of God are also likened to rain. Deuteronomy chapter 32, my doctrine shall drop as the rain. The word of God, Isaiah 53, for as the rain cometh down, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. The word of God is as the rain. Christ himself comes as the rain. In that messianic psalm, Psalm 72, he shall come down like rain upon the mown grass. His coming is as rain. And so if rain is a blessing and Christ is likened to rain, then the blessing of the church is an abundance of Christ's presence. You see that connection? rain's a blessing, Christ is like rain, then if we know blessings of church, it's more and more and more of Christ's presence in his words. That's the blessing. And so, dear child of God, I tell you, go up and look and expect God to bless his church with a deepening sense of the presence of the Lord. That should be your desire. The Lord has said, I will pray the Father He shall give you another comforter. The Spirit of God comes in his church. And the Lord says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Christ coming in the power of the Spirit of God. I am weary. I'm weary. We look and we look and we look for the blessing of God upon the church. And it's a couple of steps forward, a couple of steps back. Times of joy and then times of sorrow. The work of God is, at the present time, there's not a lot of rain falling. And so our burden, our expectation, is for God to send the rain of His blessing upon us. If I I can't tell you as God's people, get up now and look, I've got to deal with that issue. That I succumb to the unbelief that God will not bless us. But if I believe that God is pleased to bless us in answer to our prayers and His sovereign will, then I'll tell you week by week, get up and look, get up and look. So let's pray for each other. You pray for me, I'll pray for you, that God refresh us with his spirit. So come back next time to think about this blessing that comes and the prayers of Elijah that secure the blessing of God. In the meantime, let's not trifle with false teaching. Let's be strong in scriptural, biblical unity. And let's not doubt God's willingness to bless us. He is able in his good and sovereign will. Let's all pray, please. Eternal God and Father, we look to thee in Christ's name. These are searching scriptures, and the application is not without complexity. Father, we're living... In an ungodly world, and if we were to slay every false prophet, there would be blood shed upon the streets. So much false teaching, so much error all around us. Oh God, may we be able by your grace to stand fast upon the truth. To hold fast upon those lovely doctrines of Christ Jesus. Even as we come to consider tonight, Christ in the flesh Yet God over all, O oh Lord God, we pray you'd help us to delight in the gospel. That we would not, O oh Lord, take our faith as a, as a matter of minimal importance, just one other thing in our lives. O oh Lord God, help us to be wholehearted in our devotion to thee. Deliver us from our sins. Pardon our unbelief. Help us to look for your blessing as we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.